Based on the 2017 ACCAH guidelines, and these are the guidelines for hypertension now, so we're switching gears for hypertension. Which of the following medications uh, recommended as initial therapy for a 56-year-old black man, type 2 diabetes, and hypertension? Blood pressure 150. Normal renal function, no proteinuria. Lisinopril, valsartan, chlorothaladone, or atenolol? So which of the following is the recommendation for initial therapy for this gentleman. I can tell you this is, this is um, uh, the type of question that people are going to really want you to know and, and what you need to really use in your own practice. Okay. All right, Amy. You, this, is, this is a good one. Next one. So a 58-year-old African-American woman has blood pressures in the 130s. Her office blood pressure is 138. She drinks about one alcoholic beverage a day, BMI is 32, non-smoker, no family history of coronary disease. She walks for 30 minutes. Her total cholesterol is 239, triglycerides 311, HDL 34, LDL 151, her hemoglobin A1C is 5.5%. Okay, so this is the thing. If you calculate her 10-year risk from the risk factor calculator, it's 11.2%. That's her 10-year risk. Okay, now we can go ahead and vote on this. Based on the guidelines, what blood pressure would prompt medical therapy? Greater than 130, greater than 140, greater than 145, greater than 150. Okay, we'll go to the next one. 75-year-old woman um, who has not received routine medical care presents to the emergency department with diffuse sternal chest pain radiating her back and a blood pressure of 210 with a heart rate of 115. She's got a widened mediastinum. She's got sinus tachycardia and LVH on her electrocardiogram. While she's going for a CT angiogram to evaluate for dissection, you're asked what medication to use acutely. Which one would you use? IV nitroprusside, IV labetalol, IV hydralazine, or oral metoprolol? Okay. All right. Now, just a word, because you'll hear us talk about the guidelines, and you know, the guidelines are, are great, and they actually establish the standard of care. And you know that on your boards, for instance, it takes a couple years, at least two to three years, for information from the guidelines to make it into a question on the boards. But I, I would say this, what you should do when you take the boards or see your patients is know the most updated guidelines. Because whatever you do, whatever you answer, if you have the most updated guidelines in your head, that's going to be the right answer as to what to do. And the boards will look back to make sure it's not any, anything that had been written in the past doesn't contradict the current guidelines. So these hypertension guidelines were just released about, what, three or four months ago, right? Six months ago. Um, but the boards, and, and the boards will not write a question specifically for those guidelines this year because it takes a few years to get the questions in place. But if you follow those guidelines, you're going to do the right thing, and it's not going to be contradicted on the boards. Let me just say that. Because everybody's always worried about, well, should I, should, I, should I use the old guidelines or the new guidelines? Always remember the newest guidelines um, as you treat your patients or answer your questions. So this next session is going to be incredibly important because it's uh, about this disease that you'll see in most of your patients, and that's just systemic hypertension. 
A lot's been done in terms of randomized trials. A lot's been done in terms of recommendations by guidelines. We've asked Amy Pollock all the way from Florida, who's in our Florida branch of Mayo Clinic, um, who, who does an excellent job of giving you a, a, a practical overview of preventive cardiology and, and this type of abnormality. And Amy's going to come up and talk to you all about how you treat hypertension in 2018. Amy? Great. Thanks so much to Nish and Steve. It's great to be back in Minnesota. And I realized that I've been down in Florida long enough that when I stepped off the plane, I said, it's a little chilly. So um, it's good to be back and get a reprieve from the cool, or from the warm weather, rather. So I have no disclosures, but like Nish was saying, the hypertension guidelines were released in 2017 for the new AHA ACC guidelines. And interestingly enough, the ABIM has a specific caveat on the board website that says, with scenarios specifically like the new hypertension guidelines that may or may not be integrated into this year's questions, you should practice with the most current evidence-based approach when you're writing those answers to your questions. And if there is something that's really controversial, the boards will throw those questions out. So just like Nish was saying, practice up-to-date medicine when you're answering questions on the boards. So our learning objectives, we have a lot to cover in the next 35 minutes. And if someone can go ahead and start the timer, that's still at 35. We're going to define the stages of hypertension, discuss indications for treatment, appropriate management strategies for patients with hypertension, resistant hypertension, and appropriate treatment, potential secondary causes of hypertension, and then apply that to the management of our patients, and then recognize that malignant hypertension is a medical emergency, and then select appropriate treatment approaches. So we'll start with the, the basic building blocks, those stages of hypertension and when to treat. And this is the guidelines that we were um, referencing. And you may not have noticed, but the American College of Physicians and American Family Practitioners did not endorse the 2017 AHA-ACC guidelines. So I think it's really important to have that patient-centered discussion because our patients may be getting different advice from their internists compared to what they're getting in the cardiology practice. And this is from those, the new guidelines, but it's based on much older data from MESA. And I found this statistic very sobering, that in adults age 45 years or without hypertension, that lifetime risk over the next 40 years for developing hypertension, even with the more traditional cut point of 140 over 90, is really high, 80 to 90 percent. And that's part of why the new guidelines were recommending treating blood pressure at a lower um, set point. So if we look at those stages of hypertension, I think everyone agrees, regardless of which guideline you use, that a normal blood pressure is less than 120 over 80. This yellow category, the elevated, essentially in the 120s, but still less than 80 for the diastolic, is somewhat controversial between the different guidelines, but with the ACCAHA, it's considered elevated. Then in orange, this is stage one hypertension now, essentially systolics in the 130s and diastolics in the 80s. And then stage two hypertension is now 140 over 90 or higher by the ACCAHA 2017 guidelines. So when we're thinking about when to start medications for hypertension, there's three basic steps we can try to break it down to. The first step is we need to evaluate, does this patient actually have white coat hypertension? And I like the approach to this with the new guidelines, and it's similar to what we've otherwise previously done in practice. So it says if the blood pressure is between 130 over 80 and then less than 160 over 100, which to me was a little cumbersome, a little clunky to get those numbers together. So in other words, if someone's blood pressure is in the 130s, 140s, or 150s, over 80s or 90s, it's reasonable to screen for white coat hypertension. You know, have the patients check their blood pressure at home, maybe consider an ambulatory blood pressure monitor, because that white coat hypertension occurs in you know, conservatively, 20% of patients. And we know that based on studies that have used a 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitor, if someone has a normal blood pressure at home, they actually have quite a good prognosis. And certainly, most of our patients who have hypertension in the clinic are also going to have hypertension at home, but first step is really confirming that patients have um, legitimate hypertension and not influenced by white coat. So with regards to the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, 
really have three options. The home monitoring where patients are doing it themselves, a six-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitor where they have a device on their arm that inflates and deflates every 15 minutes or half an hour. It's a little irritating for patients. So if you take someone who's sort of a higher-stress individual and then slap this on their arm, that can sometimes cause some additional hypertension but can, can be helpful to exclude white coat hypertension. And then there's the 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitor, which is really helpful to look for nocturnal hypertension. If there's a big discrepancy between home and office blood pressures, or if you're seeing evidence of target organ damage, so they have profound LVH on their um, EKG or echo, and like you're hearing about from, um, from Steve, you shouldn't have interventricular septal wall thickness is really above the 15, 16-ish range for just hypertension. So when you're looking at the blood pressure readings that patients get at home, there have been several studies that looked to say that a home-based blood pressure reading of 130 over 85 is about the same as having an office-based reading of 140 over 90. And then an average 24-hour blood pressure reading, if it's greater than 130 over 80, that's considered hypertension, even before the new guidelines, because it's averaging in the nighttime and the daytime, and obviously the nighttime blood pressure should be lower. And you should have this dip of that blood pressure going down at night by about 10% compared to daytime. And I bring up this chart really to, to remind you about category number three, this masked hypertension, where someone's blood pressure is normal in the office, but you're seeing evidence of end organ damage. They have LVH, they have chronic kidney disease, and that's where you want to make sure that they don't fall into this masked hypertension, where for whatever reason their blood pressure is normal in the office, you just have a very zen you know, um, influence on them, but it's actually high at home, uh, because that does denote a higher cardiovascular risk and they should be treated as hypertensive patients. And I bring in this slide for the GNC-8 guidelines, which were certainly controversial when they came out, and I think in terms of our day-to-day -day practice as cardiologists, we've really have adopted the 2017 guidelines for treatment of hypertension. But I bring it up because sometimes family practitioners are still using these guidelines, which the big difference between what the AHAACC guidelines are versus this would be the treatment of patients over age 60, where the blood pressure goal was much more lenient, 150 over 90 to treat, and then stratified less than 140 over 90 if you were younger or if you had chronic kidney disease or diabetes. So something to be aware of as you're having those discussions with, uh, with your patients. And part of what led this change from JNC-8 to the updated uh, ACCHA guidelines was the SPRINT trial, which folks certainly here are familiar with, but I'll just recap it uh, for a moment. And one of the important things to remember is that it excluded patients with diabetes or stroke. Otherwise, took individuals over 50, blood pressure was certainly elevated, increased cardiovascular risk, and randomized to two arms, the intensive blood pressure arm, where the goal was less than 120 over 80, and a more standard blood pressure, with a goal less than 140. And medications were titrated to try to keep that blood pressure really in the 130s. And they were looking at a primary composite outcome, MI, ACS, stroke, cardiovascular death, and then acute heart failure. And what we found was the difference between that intensive versus the standard blood pressure was that folks for the intensive arm were, on average, one additional medication. So 2.8 medications versus 1.8. The average blood pressure came in right at 121 versus 136. And the primary outcome was certainly lower in the intensive arm, 1.7% per year versus 2.2%. So a relatively small absolute risk reduction, but a very dramatic relative risk reduction that really got a lot of headlines. There was a mortality benefit, certainly was striking, and it's part of what led to this trial ending early. And importantly, as we make those patient-centered discussions about how aggressively to treat someone's blood pressure, it's important to remember that that more intensive arm certainly did have higher rates of hypotension, syncope, electrolyte abnormalities, and acute kidney injury. So if we then switch gears back to the 2017 guidelines, I think this kind of stoplight framework is helpful to then look at how we are treating um, hypertension in today's day and age. So green certainly is easy. Normal blood pressure, we always want to promote a healthy lifestyle. In that yellow, elevated, so systolics in the 120s, always recommending lifestyle changes and then just reassessing, basically to make sure that it's not going up. 
And then where we're having to make decisions about medications in addition to the lifestyle changes really would be that stage one hypertension. So systolics in the 130s or diastolics in the 80s. And that's where we're starting to look at our ASCVD risk score, that pooled uh, risk score that we are used to using for lipid management to decide about statin therapy. And the idea was to use this risk score, because we're already integrating that data for statins um, and lipid risk, and then to say if someone's 10-year risk is more than 10%, that puts them in a higher risk category, and we want to treat their blood pressure more aggressively. So we'll go ahead and treat um, those folks for that lower blood pressure. Or if folks already have atherosclerotic disease, whether or not it's in the heart, the neck, brain, or the peripheral arteries, they've proven themselves to be a higher risk group. This is more of a secondary prevention, so we're treating those individuals also at that, that lower group. And then that stage two hypertension greater than 140 over 90. So we're doing both medications and lifestyle, again, if someone's blood pressure is greater than 140 over 90. So what I'm going to do is just, um, for the sake of ease, just focus on this uh, just a little bit longer, because I want to make sure that it's clear that if someone's blood pressure is in the 130s and they have known cardiovascular disease or that risk greater than 10% over 10 years, we're treating at that lower blood pressure. If they don't have known cardiovascular disease or their risk is less than 10%, then we're going to be treating for using medications if that blood pressure is higher at that 140 over 90. So what about those individuals who are over 79 years old? It's important to remember that the pooled cohort equation were only validated for adults between 40 to 79, and specifically in the absence of statin therapy. So so many of our patients are already on statin therapy. And when you look at trying to estimate the 10-year risk of individuals over 79, it's generally greater than 10%. And so the guidelines support having that more strict blood pressure goal of 130. But I think that this is really an important part to have that patient-centered discussion, because this is the population that I'm less convinced about the role of really treating with much more intensive blood pressures in terms of balancing that risk versus benefit. So if we then go on to the diet, lifestyle, and medication approach to hypertension, we know that treating hypertension reduces the risk of stroke, of heart failure, and myocardial infarction. And we know that weight loss, lifestyle changes uh, in general, can have a profound impact on blood pressure. You'll note from this table the DASH eating plan, which is really that low sodium, essentially a uh, Mediterranean diet, can really lower your systolic blood pressure by about 11 millimeters of mercury. Physical activity, you know, having no more than moderate alcohol use and avoiding NSAIDs are certainly those cornerstones of our lifestyle changes. And this was a Cochrane systematic review of weight loss and just underscores the fact that if you lose four kilograms of weight, it translates into about four millimeters of mercury of systolic blood pressure and a little less for the diastolic. And I think the guidelines with regards to how much sodium to recommend, you see a lot of numbers out there. I think in general, trying to keep someone's daily sodium intake to around 2,000, um, certainly some people respond better to much lower, so less than 1,500 milligrams of sodium, and at least three to five sessions of moderate intensity exercise per week. This was an interesting statement that looked at all of the data about salt sensitivity with regards to effect on blood pressure. And having a higher salt sensitivity of your blood pressure tends to occur more often in patients who have hypertension, which makes sense. The older that we get, metabolic syndrome, blacks compared to other racial ethnic groups, and then women. And so if you look at this graph, it's a little busy, but the green bars are patients who are normal tensive, starting by age in the 20s, going up to greater than 60 as you go from left to right. And then the orange are patients that are hypertensive. And you can see with salt restriction, whether or not you're normotensive or hypertensive, the blood pressure goes down. But there's a much more striking difference in blood pressure in patients who are hypertensive, particularly as you age. And it's important to tell our patients that the sources of dietary sodium, it's infrequent that table salt, much more likely to be the processed foods or eating out. So if we move then to hypertensive medications, 
there's, I think, consistency between both JNC-8 and the new AHAACC guidelines that if someone's blood pressure is more than 20 millimeters of mercury systolic and 10 millimeters of mercury diastolic from goal, most of the time they're going to need two medications. And so the preference is to have that be a combination pill knowing that about 25% of people will be able to get away with just one medication with those dietary changes, so you don't have to start two medications off the bat, but something to keep in mind as you're following patients. And then when we look at which medications to use, I think this part is going to be consistent uh, in terms of the medications from JNC-8 to the new AHA-ACC guidelines. So for the general population, importantly including those with diabetes, it's really a thiazide, a calcium channel blocker, or an ACE inhibitor, or ARB. And then when we look more specifically at patients who um, are African-American, there's data from the ALL-HAT trial and then ASK that there is a much lower incidence of heart failure and reduced cardiovascular events for either a thiazide or a calcium channel blocker, it was amlodipine that was mostly studied, compared to an ACE inhibitor, or ARB. So first line for an African-American patient, even with diabetes, would be a thiazide or calcium channel blocker. The caveat is that if an African-American patient has chronic kidney disease, that's really where the benefit clearly comes in in terms of the, the ACE or the ARB. And also remember that African-American patients tend to be more susceptible to the cough side effect of lisinopril or other ACE inhibitors and tends to have a less of a blood pressure lowering effect. So I think in terms of the boards, this is a very testable question, um, regardless of which guidelines you're looking at. And then with the chronic kidney disease, certainly clear-cut, these are the patients that have the strongest benefit in terms of the ACE or the ARB. The new guidelines talk about checking to see if there's more than 300 milligrams per day of albuminuria to help gauge that uh, decision. And I think that's a little, a little clunky of, a, of something to do for each of our patients. So I think if someone has chronic kidney disease, it's clear the benefit of an ACE or an ARB. There's going to be a talk by Dr. Connolly specifically on pregnancy and heart disease, and she goes into a beautiful description of hypertension in pregnancy. So I chose to have this part just be in patients who have a potential for pregnancy, where we're, you don't really want to have them on an ACE inhibitor um, and then find out that they're pregnant two months into it. So I think a calcium channel blocker, or depending upon their age and heart rate, a beta blocker, uh, is a reasonable approach in patients considering pregnancy. And then certainly if somebody has had a recent MI or systolic heart failure, our goal-directed therapy with beta blockers, ACE or ARB, and then stable coronary artery disease, uh, similar medications that we're using for hypertension. And then we'll just touch a little bit on um, the diabetes further and then sleep apnea. So we know that there's been controversy over the years with what goal blood pressure should there be for patients with diabetes, partly because of the difficulty in trials showing a clear decrease in hard events uh, for the lower blood pressure for diabetes. This would be Cordian trial, type 2 diabetes at increased cardiovascular risk, intensive blood pressure lowering less than 120, and follow-up for nine years. And there was no difference in the composite outcome of cardiovascular mortality, non-fatal MI, or non-fatal stroke. However, that being said, with meta-analysis, there does seem to be a benefit, both in terms of mortality and, and hard endpoints, and certainly we've always seen that benefit in terms of the microvascular complications. And then with sleep apnea and hypertension, the data's been limited. We know that if the CPAP's properly applied and the patient's compliant, the blood pressure can go down both at night as well as daytime, but there's a variable lowering of blood pressure effect. More significant response if it's really severe sleep apnea, Patients are already on antihypertensive medications or with resistant hypertension, which we'll touch on in just a moment. So going then into resistant hypertension, what the definitions are, they're pretty similar between JNC7, it wasn't addressed in JNC8, versus the AHA statements. The idea is you need to have uncontrolled blood pressure despite three medications. AHA says it can be controlled, but requiring four medications uh, is considered controlled-resistant hypertension. And I think important that these patients need to be on really maximal doses of these medications and including a, a diuretic. So someone's on three meds or more and blood pressure is not controlled, it's by definition resistant hypertension. And the actual prevalence of resistant hypertension isn't clear. It may be close to 9% based on NHANES. And we know certainly these patients are at a much higher risk of cardiovascular morbidity, stroke, and heart failure. 
And about half of these patients have actually pseudo-resistant hypertension, where their blood pressure is being improperly measured due to an issue with the cuff size or how they're measuring it at home, white coat effect, or poor medication compliance. The other half truly are resistant hypertension. And these causes of resistant hypertension, by far and away, higher sodium intake or inadequate diuretic therapy seems to be related with resistant hypertension. Um, excessive alcohol use, and then this is where those secondary causes of hypertension really come in. When we're thinking about medications that can lead to hypertension and potentially be driving some of this resistant hypertension, this is a very boards-testable um, area. And almost always there's one question about a medication that's leading to hypertension, and the boards are trying to lead you to saying adjusting that medication before in terms of the one that's causing the hypertension before lopping on additional antihypertensive medications. So NSAIDs are a favorite to be tested in young women, oral contraceptives, uh, particularly the estrogen predominant. Blood pressure typically returns to normal in about half of those young women. The sympathomimetics, so decongestants, um, and then antidepressants, in particular, one of the SNRIs, venlafaxine or Effexor, uh, can lead to hypertension, and that's a very board testable question. So what about refractory hypertension? This is where my blood pressure is going up when I'm seeing these patients because it's really challenging to manage their blood pressure. They have inadequately controlled blood pressure on five or more medications. And it needs to include a good diuretic like chlorthalidone as well as spironolactone. And luckily, it's the minority of patients, about 3% of resistant hypertension cases. So interestingly enough, the lifestyle changes for resistant hypertension, if you really lower their sodium, so less than 1.1 gram per day, can have a profound impact on really resistant hypertension. Exercise, likewise, can still have a significant impact. And when we look at the treatment of resistant hypertension with regards to the medications to use, this is where the water gets a little muddied because there are a lot of options to, to use, and I'm purposely clicking through these quickly because I'm going to take you to a three-step approach for this that I think will make it a little bit easier to integrate into your clinical practice as well as on the board exam. So the medications for resistant hypertension, the first step is to really optimize your diuretics. We've got the thiazides, thiazide-like diuretics, and then the loop diuretics. And of the thiazide-like diuretics, chlorothalidone is the one that's been most studied, and it's certainly twice as potent as hydrochlorothiazide. So that's really the preferred um, thiazide-like diuretic to use. With the caveat that if somebody has an EGFR less than 30, they're probably not going to respond to a thiazide diuretic, and they really need to be on a loop diuretic instead. And this sometimes is tested on the boards. The thiazide uh, diuretics can cause dyslipidemia, uh, so something just to be on the lookout for those question stems. Okay, so you've optimized the diuretics, first step. Second step is then optimizing the ACE or the ARB and calcium channel blocker. And this one seems, I think, a little simple, right? We're already going to be doing that. These are our go-to medications. But the key is that the combination of the ACE and the calcium channel blocker, or the ARB and the calcium channel blocker, seems to be even more potent than the individual drugs by themselves. So making sure that we've really optimized having them on an ACE or an ARB, as well as a calcium channel blocker. The third, and this is the one that I see not being added most of the time for patients with resistant hypertension, would be a mineralocorticoid antagonist. We're used to thinking about this for patients with heart failure, but I think less so for resistant hypertension. So spironolactone or plerinone, certainly if somebody has an EGFR greater than 30, we're less worried about issues with hyperkalemia with these patients. And you have to be careful when they have chronic kidney disease or they're taking the ACE or the ARBs. You just have to be cautious and, and watch the, their blood work. And then the breast tenderness and gynecomastia is certainly dose-dependent, but to be talking with our patients about that, to be on the lookout for symptoms. And this um, was from the ASCOT trial, and this were patients that really had resistant hypertension. Spironolactone was being added as the fourth medication. And their blood pressure systolic went down by almost 22 millimeters of mercury, and diastolic went down by nearly 10. So it's really effective in patients that have resistant hypertension. So we'll move on to the secondary causes, which is really tied up in um, patients with resistant hypertension as well. And I like the way the new guidelines outline for when we really need to be thinking about screening for secondary causes of hypertension. 
about 10% of the time with new onset hypertension or uncontrolled, this resistant hypertension, we can find a secondary cause for hypertension. So 10% of the time, one in 10. So if someone's drug resistant, we need to be thinking about looking for a secondary cause, a really abrupt onset. If they're young, hypertension less than age 30, if they're having really accelerated or very malignant hypertension, if you have the onset of diastolic hypertension alone, particularly adults over age 65, oftentimes there can be more of an issue with your adrenal access that can lead to that diastolic hypertension. And certainly if patients have really unprovoked or excessive hypokalemia, then we're going to be screening for secondary hypertension causes. So there's a number of causes that lead to secondary etiologies of hypertension. By far and away, the top three are sleep apnea, primary hyperaldosteronism, and then renal artery stenosis, followed by renal parenchymal disease, drug-induced or alcohol, thyroid, and certainly less likely, the FEO. I bring this up to highlight that in patients who have resistant hypertension, the prevalence of primary hyperaldosteronism is really pretty striking, about 20%. So I think that's why these patients tend to respond so well to medications like spironolactone. So when we look at those screening tests for secondary hypertension, we're going to be checking a TSH, free T4, the plasma metanephrines for pheochromocytoma, particularly if someone has um, other symptoms like racing heart, uh, palpitations, or if they're young, um, considering the 24-hour urines for the pheo. But I wanted to highlight the primary hyperaldo. And we're used to thinking about, really, I think from our USMLE days, about having this hypokalemic state that flags when we need to be thinking about a hyperaldo uh, patient. But interestingly enough, that low potassium state only occurs in about 30%. So two-thirds of the time, someone's going to have a hyperaldo state with a totally normal potassium. So if you see the low potassium, it helps. If the potassium is normal, that certainly is not enough to hang your hat on. And I think that's also a very board-testable concept. So we're going to be checking an aldosterone level, renin level, and then looking for that, if they have a really high aldosterone level, greater than 15, that certainly raises the ante about a hyperaldo state. Uh, and if their renin is really low, that certainly supports that. And then that aldo-renin ratio, there's differing values, less than, I'm sorry, greater than 20, greater than 30 uh, in some uh, studies. But that's enough to flag that you need to take additional steps to have confirmation about um, hyperaldosteronism. And then you'll have a separate talk on renal artery stenosis um, uh, later during this course. So for the primary hyperaldo, I think it's generally not necessary to stop the ACE inhibitors. If you're on spironolactone, then you do need to stop that for at least four weeks. If you're on a direct renin inhibitor, likewise, that needs to be stopped in order to check the renin-aldosterone uh, levels. And then if it, those screening tests flag abnormal, that's where we're needing to do a confirmatory uh, test. It can be a confirmatory saline suppression test um, after stopping the medications and then doing that screening. The renal vascular disease, I bring this up to say that even though we're used to not treating atherosclerotic renal artery stenosis, one of the indications to treat atherosclerotic renal artery stenosis is if somebody has really accelerating or malignant um, hypertension. So I think in somebody who has a really resistant or refractory hypertension picture, screening for renal vascular disease, even if they're elderly, is worthwhile, and certainly if they're young in terms of fibromuscular dysplasia. So in our last uh, bit of time together, we'll talk about malignant hypertension. So this is defined with a systolic blood pressure greater than 180 or a diastolic blood pressure greater than 120. And the difference certainly between hypertensive urgency is if you have no signs of end organ dysfunction versus emergency if you do have signs of end organ dysfunction. And the clinical findings on hypertensive emergency, I think this is all very basic to us as cardiologists, chest pain, pulmonary edema, shortness of breath, neurologic defect, stroke, uh, encephalopathy. And when we're looking at hypertensive urgency, it's usually due to under-controlled hypertension at baseline. Hypertensive emergency, we're more worried that there's something else pathologic going on to drive the blood pressure up to that level where patients are really getting end-organ uh, dysfunction. And that's where we're having to more rapidly uh, consider lowering the blood pressure. So acute heart failure, pulmonary edema, acute MI, dissecting aortic aneurysm are certainly some of the clinical scenarios in addition to that hypertensive encephalopathy or the, the PRESS syndrome. 
So I like the way the new guidelines break out this section, because I feel like this was an area where we didn't have a really organized approach. You're kind of pulling from the stroke uh, and neurology data, some from cardiology, but I think this is a very thoughtful approach. So in terms of treatment of hypertensive emergency, and this is in non-stroke patients, we'll talk about stroke in a second, if you have an acute aortic dissection, certainly we want to get that systolic blood pressure down to less than 120, really in that first hour. And that makes sense to us as cardiologists. If somebody has eclampsia or a pheochromocytoma, we're also wanting to get that blood pressure down um, really pretty quickly in the setting of that hypertensive emergency where patients have symptoms or signs of end-organ dysfunction. Again, this is emergency, not urgency. And then the last category is all the other hypertensive emergencies. While we're trying to sort things out, sometimes you don't, obviously don't know if it's a dissection right up front, you want to try to lower that blood pressure by 25% maximum within the first hour and then take it to 160 over 110 over the next two to six hours, and then to try to get it normal over the next 24 to 48 hours. Where it gets different then, certainly, is if someone's coming in with a stroke, and we'll talk about acute cerebral hemorrhage and the management of hypertension with that, and then ischemic stroke as a separate um, pathway. So if someone's really acute, less than six hours from acute uh, intracerebral hemorrhage symptoms, and their blood pressure is in the 150 to 220 range, which is a huge range. We're just going to let them ride, because they are acutely having an acute uh, intracerebral hemorrhage, and we know that there's harm if we overshoot and we get their blood pressure down to less than 140. And so it's really the fact that there's harm with lowering the blood pressure too much for why we let that wide range of blood pressure ride in the setting of um, an acute ICH. So this is very acute, less than six hours. On the other hand, if someone's blood pressure is greater than 220, then that falls into the category, even with the acute intracerebral hemorrhage, where we are going to want to lower the blood pressures cautiously with IV medications, with close monitoring. And then what about acute ischemic stroke? So this is within, again, that acute phase, less than 72 hours from the onset of stroke symptoms. You know, after 72 hours, they're starting to approach a more normal management of their blood pressure. So the first step in our decision tree is, does the patient qualify for IV thrombolytics? If they do, and this is a board-testable question, um, then their blood pressure needs to be less than 185 over 110. So if they qualify for lytics and their blood pressure is higher than that, then we're going to want to get their blood pressure down. And you need to maintain the blood pressure less than 185 over 110 for those first 24 hours. Does somebody does not qualify for lytics, then as long as their blood pressure is less than that 220 over 110, we're going to let their blood pressure ride for that first 48 to 72 hours. And I know there's you know, essentially full 24-hour wiggle room in there, but that's what the guidelines um, support, and I think that we need to use our best clinical judgment about is it 48 or 72 hours for when we're making point-of-care decisions. However, if someone's blood pressure is greater than 220 over 110, this is that same range where we were responding in terms of medication for the intracerebral hemorrhage as well, then similarly for acute ischemic stroke, even without the thrombolytics, we are going to want to lower their blood pressure. We're just going to want to do it just a little bit, like less than 15% or about 15% within that first 24 hours. So we're just doing cautious blood pressure lowering in patients with an acute ischemic stroke if they are not a candidate for IV thrombolytics. In the last couple minutes, I put these um, slides up in terms of the um, parenteral vasodilators for hypertensive emergency, just to highlight a couple of questions that are board-testable ideas, uh, and one of our questions touches on this. So with fendolapam or nicardipine, the thing you have to remember is that you can have this reflex tachycardia. So if you're um, concerned about dissection in these patients, you can't use one of those medications alone unless you have somebody on a beta blocker because of that risk of that reflex tachycardia. Uh, for the same reason, we're avoiding in patients with acute heart failure, acute MI. Uh, similar risk with the nitroprusside. We have to be cautious about the renal impairment with that. Similar with the nitroglycerin, just being aware that we need to have beta blockers if we're concerned about dissection and we're treating hypertensive emergency with the vasodilator. And then the last medications, certainly the labetalol, esmolol, metoprolol, um, 
these are more basic to us as cardiologists. We're going to avoid an acute decompensated heart failure or heart block. They're usable in most hypertensive emergencies. It's just we're not really wanting to give oral metoprolol um, if someone is acutely um, having a hypertensive emergency. And then the fentolamine, that's really for patients who have had a FIO or a cocaine overdose. So in summary, the indications for treatment of hypertension are evolving to then integrate our ASCVD risk score based on those new guidelines. And as Nish and I gave the caveat at the beginning of this talk, I think with regards to the boards, we have to use our best clinical judgment, integrate our current clinical practice. And if there are really tricky questions that there's going to be dramatically different question based on which guidelines you're using, the boards are not going to count those questions. The importance of the lifestyle changes and our medication strategy for hypertension we looked at resistant hypertension and a three-step approach to therapy, secondary causes, and then appropriate treatment approaches to hypertensive emergency. So just in the last 90 seconds, these are the board pearls. So if you take nothing else away from this talk, take these two pages and you should be pretty set. Um, so the 2017 AHA guidelines, we've talked about those a lot. If somebody has known cardiovascular disease or risk greater than 10%, blood pressure um, goal is more strict, less than 130 over 80. If the risk is lower, greater than um, the blood pressure goal is then less than 140 over 90. Everyone gets lifestyle, thiazide diuretics and a calcium and or calcium channel blocker in African-American patients. Uh, white coat hypertension is an indication to consider ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. And then that resistant hypertension, very testable for the boards, three-step approach, maximize diuretics, then ACE or ARB and calcium channel blocker, and then third, spironolactone, evaluate for secondary causes, the top three being sleep apnea, hyperaldo or renovascular, and then that hypertensive emergency, remembering the difference in our treatment of blood pressure depending upon whether it's hypertensive emergency due to a MI, heart failure, or dissection versus ischemic stroke versus an intracerebral hemorrhage. So with that, thank you so much and good luck. Be beautifully done, Amy. Those last two slides are real pearls. Um, if, if you know those last two slides, um, you're, you're, you're gonna do very, very well. So let's go back over some of these questions, and you've actually got a ton of questions pouring in. Okay. Um, we'll try to get to, to a lot of them, but for those of you um, who want to ask questions directly to the speakers, um, you'll see that Steve has already kind of put in the portal the answers to the questions that you would ask the first talk. Um, our speakers usually stick around during the breaks, so you can come up to them and ask questions then. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, remember, we'll have our speakers out in the lobby um, where you can ask questions uh, either about their lectures or even about specific cases that you might have. So we'll, we'll give you plenty of opportunity to interact with them all. So let's go back to question number one. Based on the new guidelines, or not even based on the guidelines, in your own practice, which of the following medication is recommended as the initial therapy for a 56-year-old black man, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, with normal renal function and no proteinuria? Lisinopril, valsartan, chlorothalidone, or atenolol? We're going for more than 95%. I, I know you could do it. Let's <laughs> <laughs> see if they can do it. Hey! Congratulations. Now, a couple questions. Um, you said you're going to change if they have chronic kidney disease. Mm -hmm. What is the definition? What, what is the... I know you said it, but they've asked a couple times, what is the cutoff of chronic kidney disease that you might change your initial therapy, and what would your initial therapy be? So that's a great question. So the, the definitions of chronic kidney disease would be any amount of proteinuria greater than that 300 milligrams per day. So if you are doing a 24-hour urine um, and you see more than 300 milligrams of protein in 24 hours, even with fairly normal creatinine that counts as chronic kidney disease where there's a benefit to an ACE or an ARB. Um, the other one certainly would be if somebody has, uh, you know, essentially stage two or stage three chronic kidney disease, then um, they're falling into that benefit of the ACE or the ARB. I think from my practice, if somebody has chronic kidney disease of any capacity, stage one, two, or going on forward, then I would like to have them on an ACE or an ARB. I think it's pretty cumbersome to think that we're going to be checking 24-hour um, urines for all of our patients. 
So I generally will check uh, microalbumin to creatinine um, and then um, look to see what their kidney function is. The reality is that most of these patients are not going to be on just one medication. So most of the time, again, if their blood pressure goal is more than 20, over, 20 millimeters of mercury for systolic over 10 for the diastolic from goal, almost three-quarters of patients will need two medications. And that's where I think a combination pill, where in particular for this gentleman, if he, with the type 2 diabetes and hypertension, if he did have chronic kidney disease, then doing you know, an ARB with um, the chlorothalidone would be what I would do. So you actually just answered another question. The indication to start two medications versus one medication in a person, can you repeat what you just said? Yeah, so the indication is if it's systolic is more than 20 millimeters from goal or the diastolic is more than 10 from goal, then to consider starting two medications with the caveat that the guidelines go into the studies about essentially three-quarters of people will need that second medication to get at goal. About a quarter will only need the one medication, and some of it hinges upon, does somebody have a lot of room to go in terms of dietary lifestyle changes, weight loss, and exercise, in which case their blood pressure certainly is going to be coming down from, from that. Okay. Good. This was your first one, so you got quite a lift there. Mary Ellen, look at the lift she got. Pretty good, huh? All right, question number two. A 58-year-old African-American woman has blood pressure readings at home in the 130s to 85 millimeter mercury range. Office blood pressure was 138 over 87. She drinks on average one alcohol beverage, BMI 32, non-smoker, no family history of coronary disease, walks daily for 30 minutes. She's got a hyperlipidemia, high triglycerides, and an LDL. Hemoglobin A1C is 5.5. So you calculate her CV risk score. Now I'm going to stop right there because what the first question that came up is, what if I what, what if I'm taking the boards? How am I going to calculate a 10-year risk factor? Yes, no, absolutely. And so I, I debated having this question with the um, this in it because of the fact that the guidelines were new from last November. If they do give you something that they they're going to give you the 10-year risk score, it's not going to, you're not going to have to calculate it on your own. Um, and so I think that if that information is given, whether or not it's a Framingham or the ACVD, there's be some indication that these patients are at an increased 10-year risk, uh, which is what then you're trying to use to stratify how aggressive to use that less than 130 over 80 or that 140 over 90. And, and remember, the 10-year risk score is for people who do not have known atherosclerotic disease. Mm -hmm. If you have known atherosclerotic disease, you're automatically in that high-risk category. So I, I think that's something that, I, and we get so you know, caught into the numbers and calculating risk. Remember, if they've already had a stent put in, they're in that high-risk category already in terms of treatment of both your diabetes and your hypertension. And I'd say the one other caveat to consider, just in terms of clinical practice with the new guidelines with the risk, is that similar to the way we treat the ASCVD risk score for the purposes of treating dyslipidemia, it doesn't take into consideration family history. So if someone has a family history of premature coronary artery disease, they themselves may be at a higher risk than estimated by the 10-year risk score. So it's an imperfect way to estimate someone's 10-year risk. So I think with anything that we're doing, we're not just using that piece of data, that risk score in isolation, but integrating that to our total clinical picture. So, so the question is, is despite the... Um 25 different editorials saying that the risk score over or under calculates risk. What do you do in your practice? You know, I calculate it and, and use it as a, as a tool to make the overall um, assessment. I think that uh, you know, if somebody has a family history of premature coronary artery disease, they're in a different category in my perspective. They're not adequately represented by the risk score. Everybody else, we know that it generally tends to underestimate the risk in women by about 10 years, so I don't think it performs very well in women, so I'm generally doing a, a Reynolds score as well. Um, and, and I think then just a, you know, a gestalt uh, in terms of the overall patient's cardiovascular risk, but I certainly calculate it and use it as one of the tools. Okay, and we'll, we'll go over a little bit of this tomorrow, but in your own practice, do you use coronary calcification um, in, in this type of situation? Yeah, it, with regards to treating blood pressure alone, I haven't used that as a differentiator for hypertension. Certainly with dyslipidemia, I'll use coronary calcification, particularly in patients who have that family history of early onset disease. Okay, sounds good. So now, you've got this woman and they've already given you that she's got an 11.2% 10-year risk. 
Now, based on the guidelines, what blood pressure would prompt the use of the medication? 130, 140, 145, or 150? Not quite 95. <laughs> okay. You want to comment on this? I think this is what we were just talking about, that the goal is if patients are at that increased cardiovascular risk, more than 10% estimated risk over a 10-year period, supporting using that lower blood pressure um, cutoff of 130 over 80, or as Nis was saying, if you have known cardiovascular disease, you've proven yourself to be higher risk, and then wanting to have the blood pressure um, be lower. Okay. Now, again, there were... Uh, uh, a number of questions, if you could straighten this out for us. We're saying 130 over 80, but is that ambulatory or home or office? Or what, 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 what does that 130 mean? I know, it's a, it's a great question. So, the, um, so that's based on the office-based um, blood pressure readings, assuming they don't have white coat hypertension. And the challenge is, is that the, in, I don't know, the, New Guidelines is a very, from my perspective, very well-written document. I was not on the writing committee, so I have no vested interest there. But um, one of the challenges I have with it is that it says that in order to have an accurate blood pressure reading, you have to be sitting in a chair with your arms easily, you know, supported well and um, for five minutes, quietly, no caffeine with an empty bladder. I mean, how many of our patients, <laughs> let alone us, you know, have had no caffeine and an empty bladder when you get your blood pressure checked? So it's a little um, unrealistic, I think, in terms of the scenario that they painted to then say, we can really trust the blood pressure. So my, my gestalt is that if the blood pressure's in the 130s, then someone is at high cardiovascular risk or has known cardiovascular disease. We know based on the SPRINT trial that if we can get their blood pressure on average closer to the 120, they have less overall heart events and a mortality benefit, but at a cost, not only in terms of the cost of an additional medication on average per day, but also in terms of the electrolyte issues, kidney issues, um, syncope, and, and hypotension. So with elderly patients, I'm, and certainly that's a big um, umbrella, but if somebody is 95 years old and has a history of falls, I'm not gonna push them to a blood pressure of less than 130 over, over 80. So final question, and she, Amy did a marvelous job about some of these acute emergencies. 75-year-old woman uh, comes in with chest pain, going to her back, blood pressure of 210, heart rate 115. She's got this widened mediastinum, so you're already sweating bullets. The ECG has sinus tack and LVH. Now, while she's going to rule out dissection, what medication would you use acutely? Sodium nitroprusside, labetalol, hydralazine, or metoprolol? Oh. <laughs> 